Hello, and welcome to Decision Points, the U.S.-Israel relationship. My name is David Murkowski, the Ziegler Distinguished Fellow at the Washington Institute and Director of the Project on Arab-Israel Relations, and I'm excited to go on this journey through history with you. On today's episode, we will discuss the first case of an Arab-Israel peace treaty, which was the result of the Camp David Accords and the role the U.S. played. From its inception, the Carter administration attempted to broker a comprehensive resolution to the conflict between Israel and its Arab neighbors. Carter met with several Arab leaders in the first year of his presidency to jumpstart negotiations. He believed previous Secretary of State Henry Kissinger's approach had been too gradual. He wanted all the Arab countries to sit around one table and reach a grand peace deal with Israel. Anwar Sadat was the leader of Egypt, the most populous and powerful Arab country at the time. As we discussed in the last episode, the Soviet Union had assisted Egypt in wars with Israel. Since Moscow severed ties with Israel in 1967, Egypt had no diplomatic leverage with Israel, particularly to get back the Sinai Desert, which Egypt lost in the 1967 war. As Sadat would famously say, Washington had 99% of the cards. Due to Kissinger, the Israeli military made partial withdrawals in the Sinai as Sadat entered the American geopolitical orbit. Yet things were only in mid-gear for Sadat. There were massive food riots in Egypt in 1977, and he wanted the U.S. to assist. Israel's new prime minister, Menachem Begin, was seen as a hawk to many due to his commitment to the biblical lands of the West Bank but he was more pragmatic when it came to the Sinai buffer. His critique of the Kissinger era was that Israel was asked to make partial withdrawals in the Sinai without a peace treaty in return. He sent out feelers to see if Sadat would be open to back-channel talks. Thanks to Morocco's King Hassan, secret talks were arranged in Rabat in September 1977. Sadat decided Carter's comprehensive approach with the Arab states called the Geneva Peace Conference was not workable, as it would have made Sadat hostage to the lowest common denominator, Syria, that was not interested in peace. Instead, Sadat decided to go his own way. In November 1977, Sadat announced the unthinkable. He was ready to visit Israel. And so to a turning point in the Middle East. Sadat's presidential jet arrives, saluted by Israeli flags. Two weeks later, against the wishes of President Carter, Sadat arrived for a three-day visit to Jerusalem, which included an address to the Knesset. Israelis were so excited by the visit that former Prime Minister Golda Meir equated it to the arrival of the Messiah. The visit didn't just stun the world, but it stunned Arab countries. Syria, Iraq, Libya, Algeria, and South Yemen cut their diplomatic ties in a bid to isolate Egypt. But Sadat pushed forward with open talks with Israel. Yet the negotiations were difficult. We agree upon the principle, upon security. We agree. But uh, the meaning of security, uh, we differ on it. In addition to the question of the Sinai and Israeli settlers living in northern Sinai, Sadat felt vulnerable to Arab accusations of betraying the Palestinian cause. Here he had an ally in President Carter, who was the first American president to call for a Palestinian homeland. Yet Begin felt that giving in on the Palestinian issue created a security threat for Israel. Moreover, withdrawal from biblical patrimony ran against his deepest ideological core beliefs. 
Begin had his own idea on the Palestinian issue, and it's interesting, he didn't call them Palestinians, he called them Arabs of the land of Israel. And only at Camp David does it come around to the idea of accepting legitimate rights of the Palestinians. But he really saw Zionism as completely compatible with civil liberties for Arabs. And that meant Arabs inside Israel, but also West Bank Arabs that he felt they deserve autonomy. Israel should not control their daily life. This is wrong. And he even wanted that these Arabs of the West Bank should be allowed to vote in Israeli elections. This is something no Israeli leader agreed to before or after. In August 1978, Secretary Vance invited both Begin and Sadat to meet with President Carter at Camp David in Maryland for a peace summit. The big question was who would give in in order to save this historic initiative. Our guest today is Dr. Ken Stein, who has been a professor of contemporary Middle Eastern history, political science, and Israel studies at Emory University for 43 years. Ken has written several books on Israeli-Arab peace negotiations, including his work on the Camp David Accords, Heroic Diplomacy, Sadat Kissinger, Carter Begin, and the Quest for Arab-Israel Peace. His website, IsraelEd.org, highlights sources that surround the Arab-Israel conflict. Ken, I'm so grateful to you for joining. So maybe you could just explain for our audience the stakes for Carter, Begin, and Sadat regarding the success of Camp David. Did one leader have more to lose or gain than the other? Did this impact the negotiating strategy and the leverage of each side? To recapitulate for about a minute, the context is terribly important. Sadat's visit to Jerusalem in November of 1977 was breathtaking. It was unheard of. Sadat had violated the concept of no peace, no recognition, no negotiation with Israel. But he essentially had begun to do that after the 1973 war with Henry Kissinger's engagement in diplomacy. So Sadat's eagerness to reach an arrangement with the Israelis was not something that was new. It was something that he had started, initiated, fostered, and engaged with the Americans in the 73 to 77 period. Yes, there were secret negotiations between Israelis and the Egyptians that laid the groundwork for Sadat's visit to Jerusalem. No promises were made in that visit. When Dayan, the foreign minister, met with Vice President Tuhami in Morocco, nonetheless, Sadat was the engine. My own belief is that without Anwar Sadat, there probably would not have been a negotiating process. He never wanted to let the ball lay still. He had to constantly push it and do what was necessary to make it happen. When he went to Camp David, Anwar Sadat knew that he had to reach a conclusion that was satisfactory to Egyptian national interests because he had gambled by going to Jerusalem. He took a lot of heat. He took a lot of venom. He took a lot of hatred from his Arab allies, his Arab peers. So going to Camp David, Sadat understood that what he needed was an agreement. He knew he couldn't leave Camp David without an agreement. And he knew what he wanted. He wanted all of Sinai back, and he wanted all of Israeli settlements out of Sinai. Menachem Begin, elected in May of 77, had a deep, passionate understanding and feeling for the land of Judea and Samaria in the West Bank. And Begin's own personal feeling was articulated very well by his foreign minister, 
Moshe Dayan, who in October of 1977 visited with Jimmy Carter and said, here are the th- three or four items that the United States will not pressure us to do. This is what the Israelis will not do. We will not allow an independent Palestinian state. We will not withdraw from the Jordan River. We will not allow Palestinian self-determination, and we will not stop settlements. Those principles or those ideals were the very same ideals that the Israeli delegation took into the Camp David discussions, and the Israelis walked out of the Camp David discussions with those four ideals or those four principles not touched. So for Begin and for Dayan and for the defense minister Weizmann, it was, how do we achieve an agreement with the most populous Arab state and at the same time not give up our four principles? Jimmy Carter was probably that individual who had most to lose by going into the negotiations. Jimmy Carter was cautioned by his wife, Rosalind Carter, by Vice President Mondale, by Stu Eisenstadt, his domestic advisor, not to enter into the negotiations, not to bring these gentlemen to Camp David. Hamilton Jordan, his chief of staff, or who acted as his chief of staff, warned him there could be huge domestic ramifications that could be negative. This was 1978. It wasn't a coming presidential year. Jimmy Carter admitted after he left the White House that he made decisions based on what he thought was right and what he thought was proper, but didn't want to take into account the domestic ramifications. Carter went to Camp David believing that he could, through his negotiating abilities, force Menachem Begin to change his idea of Palestinian self-rule and Palestinian autonomy and have it devolve into independent Palestinian state, into self-determination. And Carter proved unable to do so. So in that sense, Jimmy Carter did not obtain what he wanted when he left. And when he left Camp David, he had a minor spike in public opinion in favor of what he had accomplished. But Jimmy Carter had a problem well before Camp David. He had cultivated a rather negative relationship between himself, members of the Christian American community, and the American Jewish community because he had pushed Israel, he had said public things, he'd engaged in foreign policy decisions such as denying the Israelis the right to sell aircraft to Ecuador, such as selling aircraft, advanced fighter aircraft to Egypt and Saudi Arabia. The Israelis were very skeptical of Carter. They were very skeptical that he would pressure them. So for Carter, he did not walk away from Camp David with what might be called a real public opinion victory. He really just had a short spike and difficulties arose when it came to the negotiations over the treaty which only came about in March of 79, six months later. So let me ask you, Ken, I mean, you worked with Carter for a time at the Carter Center. There's probably very few people who have spent more time with Carter talking about his Middle East ideas. And I wrote a a book now with Dennis Ross, Be Strong Enough, Good Courage, where I have a chapter on Begin and his road to Camp David. But, you know, there was a time that Carter and Begin's relationship was not terrible. The December 77 meeting. After Sadat comes to Jerusalem, Carter said, I envy your polling numbers. He saw the autonomy proposal as something very favorable. But somehow the Carter-Bagan relationship just 
goes off a cliff and never recovers. Having spent this time with Carter, how do you explain the sharp drop and the sense of antipathy towards Begin? Well, the sense of antipathy came about from several sources. First, it came about from their total disagreement on what should be done with the West Bank and Gaza. Menachem Begin was opposed to a Palestinian state. His foreign minister had said that to Carter. If Carter was going to obtain a Palestinian state and Palestinian self-determination, then Israeli settlements had to be stopped. Israeli settlements had to be withdrawn because that was the area where the Palestinian state or Palestinian self-determination was to express itself. So there's a fundamental principle which Carter constantly tried to not hide, but he tried to diminish in the public realm because he didn't want to emphasize the anguish or the antagonism that he felt toward Begin. But the real anguish and the real antagonism toward Israel and toward Begin came from his National Security Council advisor, Zbigniew Brzezinski. Brzezinski really did not like the fact that the Israelis were engaged in, at times, shaping American foreign policy toward the Middle East. Brzezinski actually goes on record and he says he wants to break the back of the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee. And he says this to Mark Siegel, who is an advisor to Hamilton Jordan and helps Hamilton on matters with the Jewish community. Siegel is convinced that Brzezinski was the individual who influenced Carter the most in having a measure of antipathy toward Israel. And Jimmy Carter was pulled into Brzezinski's view. Jimmy Carter had his own motivations for Palestinian self-determination. He thought it was a human rights issue. He thought it was much like a civil rights issue in the South. But Carter constantly was being urged, prodded by Brzezinski, push for a Palestinian state, push for self-determination, besides which we need to do this for Anwar Sadat if he is going to be the Arab who comes forth and reaches an agreement with the Israelis, Anwar Sadat needs cover. Sadat needs help on Jerusalem. Anwar Sadat needs the Arab world to see that he hasn't sacrificed the Palestinians. And as it turned out, the good feeling or the good vibes that you may have seen in December of 77 quickly dissipated in February to May of 1978 when the plain deal, the Egyptian-Saudi-Israeli plain deal, was put forth before the, the Senate and it was passed. The Israelis felt totally wounded. But at the same time, when the PLO was attacking an Israeli bus on the coastal road in March of 78, and then the Israelis invade southern Lebanon, and then the Americans are highly critical of Israel's moves. You had this up-and-down public animus, well, it's not so bad relationship that went on right up until Camp David, and it went through Camp David, and it went through the Egyptian-Israeli Treaty in March of 79, and it culminated in the Carter administration urging or not vetoing three resolutions that called Jerusalem occupied. I think one of them called Jerusalem occupied and called the West Bank and Gaza occupied. By doing so, you're essentially telling Menachem Begin, your political point of view is not valid. Your political point of view is not kosher. It's not good for us. It's not good for the Americans. And the tension between Carter and Begin 
carried over into 79 and 80, and it carried over into the presidential election campaign when many American Jews did not vote for Carter in the spring 1980 uh, primaries. They voted for Teddy Kennedy. And Jimmy Carter said to me more than once, I was abandoned by two groups in the 1980 election. I was abandoned by the evangelicals and I was abandoned by the Jews. And Jimmy Carter, I think, after he left the White House, still had this bad feeling. You want to use the word animus. You want to use the word antagonism. I don't know where you want to go on the the lexicon of nuance. But clearly, that feeling of feeling somehow he was the brunt of public opinion in the United States for not having a second term, and he doesn't feel he was responsible for not having a second term. He doesn't feel that the Iran hostage crisis or high mortgage rates or high interest rates had an impact. He believes it was domestic politics, and he carried that belief with him all during the 10 years when in 12 years I worked with him intensely at the Carter Center until we sort of separate ways. He went separate ways with Emory University fellows, and then I broke with him in 2006 officially. But David, the relationship between the two leaders was tense. It was never warming. And Bacon also felt a measure of envy because Carter embraced Sadat. Yeah, that's clear to me when doing the research. And, you know, now a lot of stuff has been declassified, including on the Israeli side. And you really see that Begin was envious of the Carter-Sadat relationship. I agree with everything you said. I, I wonder, as a friendly amendment, I think also January 78, things begin to take an icy chill when Begin and he listens to Sharon, well, maybe, you know, say something about strengthening settlements. And suddenly then they said, oh, this is not about security. This is about ideology. And things just seem to go downhill. All the points that you mentioned, that meeting at the White House in March, I mean, I think Begin was expecting a lot of sympathy for, you know, the big killing of terrorists that precipitated the Latani operation. And he felt he got no backing. And by the time... No the, kudos. No, no kudos, kudos from the American president. Not, not at all. And there, he, you know, Carter said to him at the meeting in March, you know, these are six no's. And he made, Carter made sure by the time Begin got to the Hill that he would get an icy reception there. Yes. And the relationship just goes downhill and it never recovers. So I want to bring you back into Camp David itself. So on one hand, it looks like Begin's strategy seems to be, at the end of the day, Sadat wants a bilateral peace treaty. This is great for him. He recovers every inch of his territory. This will lead him to more U.S. assistance. This is what he wants. And he's betting that he can do an Egypt-Israel deal. Yes, there'll be some Palestinian autonomy in the West Bank. Begin, the civil liberties streak in him, does not want Israel to control the daily life of others. And Carter is holding out for more. Like, okay, this is the prize. I know what you want. You want the prize, Egypt-Israel peace. But the price for the prize is something more expansive when it comes to the Palestinians in the West Bank. But at some point, Ken, right... Carter decides, makes a calculation, you know what, these are going to be two separate deals. I'm not going to give up the Egypt-Israel peace treaty just because I can't get Begin to yield to my West Bank approach. So as someone who, again, who knows Carter so intimately, that seems to be, to me, the turning point of the summit. 
that Carter's concept seems to shift, that he goes for more the feasible than the desirable. And I just wonder if you can give us a sense of the that shift from the desirable to the feasible in, in the mind of Jimmy Carter. I think it happened on September 11th. Thankfully, over the last year and a half, we've had documents released by the U.S. government and by the Israeli government. The Israeli materials is a lot fuller because they're transcript, not just memorandum of understandings. And in the Israeli transcripts, we find out that on September 11th, halfway through the negotiations, Carter actually told the Israelis, he told Begin and he told Dayan, I'm not leaving here without an agreement. And he didn't specify what that agreement was. But the Israelis knew from that point that the president of the United States was not going to leave Camp David without that special agreement, whatever it was. And then the Israelis proceeded to focus primarily on Sinai because they wanted to deflect attention away from the West Bank and Gaza. And Begin kept reminding Carter that he was accepting UN Resolution 242. He was withdrawing from territories taken in the recent conflict. But for Begin, that meant only one part of the territories taken in the 67 war, not Golan, not Jerusalem, not the West Bank, not Judea and Samaria. From September 11th forward, what the minutes of the meetings tell us that was probably around September 15 and 16, two days before it was supposed to end. Begin agreed to allow the Israeli parliament to make a key decision that he would not acknowledge personally that the Israelis should withdraw settlements, should pull them out of Sinai. But he said with Dayan's suggestion that the Israeli parliament make that decision And Carter then went to Begin and said, if you allow the Israeli parliament to make that decision, then you're going to allow the Israeli parliamentarians to decide without party discipline? And Begin said, yes, I'll let them make their independent decision. Once that was made, Carter felt he had an Egyptian-Israeli treaty wrapped up. And he did, essentially. Now Carter had to find a way to give Sadat a fig leaf or two in the last two or three days of the discussions. And one of those was, how can I help Sadat with the Palestinians? He still wanted Begin's autonomy plan to devolve to an independent Palestinian state. And Dayan and Weizmann and Aaron Barak, the very able then-to-be Supreme Court justice who was an advisor to Begin, said, beware, Jimmy Carter is trying to get you into a place where you cannot stop the devolution of an independent Palestinian state. And Begin just flat out said to Carter, I know what you're trying to do. You're trying to trick us. We're not going to fall for this trick. I mean, there's a pretty tense discussion between the Israeli leader and Carter on the 16th and 17th of September. And then Carter did something which no one anticipated. On the 17th, before they actually finished, he has a conversation with Moshe Dayan and he says, Sadat really wants to have Arab control and Muslim control over Jerusalem. What can you do? And Dayan looks, steps back, and he looks at the president and he said, Mr. President, if we had known that you were going to raise Jerusalem and your views of Jerusalem at these talks, for us, this is more serious than just stopping settlements. Please, don't even talk any further about it. And Carter dropped it. Now, why did Carter raise it? Carter raised it because he knew the Saudis were pressuring Sadat to get something for Jerusalem. 
And the Israelis remained staunch in their outlook and said no. So Jerusalem was handled in separate letters, much like other items were handled in separate letters. They weren't part of the Camp David Accords. And a lot of what was negotiated in the Camp David Accords only evolved in detail over the next six months and was signed in the the Egyptian-Israeli Treaty of March of 79. I just need to correct something for the record. People refer to the Camp David Accords as the Camp David Treaty. They're not a treaty. The treaty was March of 79. Of course. The brinkmanship didn't end at Camp David. At Camp David, yes, they discussed some of the, the Sinai details, you know, is Israel going to get a replacement for an airfield that it had in Sinai? What about the 2,000 settlers in northern Sinai and Dayan? And some of the others did say, you know, this could be used as a precedent. But to Begin's credit, he went on with it. And to Sadat's courage, he was willing to take the leap with, you know, an Egypt-Israel peace breakthrough, even if it didn't have an Israeli-Palestinian breakthrough. This is going to be one of the most iconic moments of the 20th century, that accord. But people forget that the brinkmanship actually continued on for six more months until the March 26, 1979 peace treaty that concluded the first peace treaty between Israel and an Arab neighbor. And because Egypt is the biggest Arab country, it basically meant that the interstate Arab war coalition, right, from 19, that you had wars in 48, 56, 67, 73, if you want to count the war of attrition, 68 to 70, that these wars that punctuated the last several decades, without Egypt, there is no war coalition. Now, as it turns out, there would be non-state actors that they didn't foresee then, like Hamas and Hezbollah, but those people do not have air forces or tanks or anything like that. So it's a different order of magnitude. So this is like an, is a political earthquake. And, you know, I was just wondering, as you assess the legacy going forward, this treaty does survive the assassination of Sadat. It survives two wars in Lebanon, two intifadas, the Muslim Brotherhood coming to power. I mean, it endured a lot. And I don't know if the leaders could have even envisioned what it endured, but it's a lasting edifice. People always say it's a cold peace, but it's a cold peace where you don't lose people on the battlefield, as both sides did over the decades. So, I mean, I was just wondering if there were other elements of the legacy that you would agree with, disagree with, add upon, whatever. Sure. Very briefly, Egypt was expelled from Arab councils for 10 years. Egypt comes back at the end of the 80s. The legacy here is you can make an agreement with the Israelis and still be part of Arab politics. And the precedent, of course, was the signing of the Jordanian-Israeli Treaty, which happened in October of 1994. So that was an important legacy. We all know that Jordan would not have been the first country to reach an agreement with Israel. Another element was that the Israelis tested Egypt's intention. There was this priority of obligation, which said that Egypt had to adhere to its agreement with Israel above and beyond all of its agreements with any other state, including Arab states. And the Israelis tested the Egyptians. They bombed the Iraqi reactor in 1981. They invaded Lebanon in 1982. And on several other occasions, uh, the Israelis tested Egypt's intention. Sometimes the Egyptians withdrew their ambassador, but they didn't break the treaty. And that was significant. I think it's significant for the diplomatic process because here we see that bilateral diplomacy works. A comprehensive peace doesn't work. We also realize that in negotiations, you have to have a lot of pre-negotiations. You have to have a lot of give and take beforehand. You have to have 
leaders who are willing to look over the horizon, who are willing to take risks, who are willing to engage in political trade-offs. That was a lesson. Some people ask me today, how come you can't have a Palestinian-Israeli agreement like you had then? Well, you don't have those same key principles, people willing to take risks, people willing to look over the horizon. And I think, David, the legacy of the treaty is that from here on, even though the 1980s the Palestinians continued to be wooed by the Americans. The Reagan administration did exactly what the Carter administration tried to get Arafat to say the magic words, to recognize 242, to recognize the state of Israel, to renounce terrorism. He wouldn't do it. And I think what you have from 1980 forward as a result of the treaty is a beginning of the slippage of the Palestinian Arab national feeling amongst Arabs that this is something we're willing to sacrifice for. If you push ahead 20 years, you get to the Arab Spring in 2011, you realize that people in individual states now are more worried about their own identity, their own economy. What are they going to do about more bread on the table? And if you look at the Arab media, what you see in the Arab media is this repetitive Arab criticism of Palestinian unwillingness to reach an understanding of staying true to their long-term goal that goes back to the 20s and 30s, not to recognize Zionism, not to recognize the Jewish state, not to recognize Israel, not to even share the land west of the Jordan River. I personally believe that we would have stepped back and look at the Camp David Accords and the Egyptian-Israeli Treaty, and we look back at it in 50 years from now, I think one would see that the attitudes toward the Palestinians is seriously decreasing in emphasis on the part of Arab leaders and the Arab street. Look at the Sunni states that are now making alliances of convenience with the Israelis. At the sacrifice, we're not even demanding that there be any progress with the Palestinians. The legacy of the Camp David Accords, the White House matters. We got a whole... <laughs> lexicon of vocabulary, the whole term negotiating process evolves. You are in the middle of it yourself with Kerry. You know what the give and take is. That didn't exist before Kissinger, and it certainly didn't exist before Carter. And now we have American presidents that aren't paying as much attention toward the Palestinians. And let me finish with this, if you will allow me. One last quick point. I believe America has done more to articulate for Palestinian self-determination than any other country in the world. I also believe that Americans who are on the, the center and center left in the political spectrum articulate more for the Palestinians than Arabs might in Egypt or in Syria or in Iraq or in Morocco. And it's a, a very strange kind of reality. I don't know where that's going. It didn't exist in 1979. It didn't exist in... 1999. I know there was great hope about Rabin. I know there was great hope that things would get different or better. Remember that neither the Oslo Accords of 1993, nor the Camp David Accords of 1978, nor the Egyptian-Israeli Treaty spoke about Palestinian self-determination or an independent Palestinian state. So there's a measure of consistency in Israeli leaders who may have said, yes, we're interested in a two-state solution, but when push comes to shove, as we say in Yiddish, when you get down to tachos, 
it's not there yet. Ken, I just want to thank you so much for your time and your insights. And I really urge the listeners of this podcast to read your book, Heroic Diplomacy by Ken Stein. And I just want to thank you very much. Thanks for the time, David. I think it was fascinating for our listeners to know that Carter and his advisors wrote their memoirs right after they left office in the early 1980s. And their critique of Begin was that he defined his interests as purely in terms of Egypt-Israel peace and did not go far enough on the Palestinian issue. However, every Israeli leader, left and right, since the Oslo Accords, says there could have been no Palestinian authority without Menachem Begin agreeing to autonomy. He gave it the imprimatur, which still continues. So I think sometimes it matters when you write history because there are developments that emerge and this might change our perspective on the legacy of Camp David. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Ken Stein. I would urge you, besides reading his book, also to look at the book that Dennis Ross and I wrote called Be Strong and of Good Courage, How Israel's Most Important Leaders Shaped Its Destiny. There's a large chapter there on Menachem Begin's road to Camp David. A lot of declassified material coming both from State Department archives and and the archives of Israel. Please go to your favorite podcast app, subscribe, rate, and review, and tell your friends. I want to thank all of those who made this podcast possible. Basha Rosenbaum, Richard Myron and Anouk Millet of Earshot Strategies, Paul Woody Woodhull of District Productive on Capitol Hill, Scott Boxer, Rena Wasserstein, and David Patkin. Music